Hi, everyone. This is Fumi, your host of Hashtag Our Racism. I wanted to start off today's episode by sharing with you a few announcements. First, this will be the last episode of the year, and we will be back next year on Wednesday, January 5th. Second, due to new commitments that I have taken up over the last few months, from next year onwards, there will only be one episode per month. New episodes will launch the first week of every month on Wednesdays. Quotes of each speaker, as well as monthly reflection questions, will continue to be posted on Instagram. So don't forget to check them out. Finally, thank you all for your unrelenting support. It's been a truly challenging but incredible journey so far, one I know none of this would have been possible without you. Arigato to everyone. Hang in there the last few weeks of December. Have a wonderful holiday. Take care of your physical and mental health. And see you next year. This podcast series is part of Hashtag Hour, a new grassroots project that brings together personal stories of all backgrounds to widen discussions on existing and important issues that are often silenced. Interested in the project or want to contribute to our work? Check out www.ourcontext.org. What does it mean to identify as mixed-race Asian American who many people read as white? In this episode, Wendy shares with us what it's like when your self-identification is not shared by people around you, as well as her reflections on the structural nature of racist beliefs. I'm Fumi, this is Hashigar Racism, and this is the story of Wendy. I am the oldest of five kids of a multiracial family. So yeah, my mom is second generation Chinese American and my grandfather's first generation. My great grandparents immigrated from China in the late 30s and early 40s. So my great grandmother, she was from Hong Kong and my great grandfather was from somewhere in mainland China. We don't really know because he was escaping the Cultural Revolution. And so all we know is that his village just doesn't exist anymore. But he came to America to basically make a life for himself and his fortune since he didn't have any family. And he did really well. He came to Seattle and he made a very successful restaurant called The Four Seas. So any Seattleites out there, if your parents know The Four Seas restaurant, that was my my family's restaurant. It became a staple of the international district in Seattle for Chinese food. And he did really well. Um, Then he did a trip to Hong Kong where he met my great-grandmother. And my great-grandmother was from a very wealthy family. So she was the kind of girl who had a girl who was paid to carry her school books for her. So when my great-grandfather met met her, you know, my great-grandmother, obviously, you know, she fell in love with him. She always said that he was her James Bond. He was the man in the suit, you know. And um, so he went to my great-great-grandfather and said, I'd like to marry your daughter and I can provide the life that she's accustomed to. And he even built her a house in Mercer Island, which is part of Seattle, which is very hoity-toity. But at the time, a lot of, you know, Asian immigrants who did well would build their houses there. So there was a big, well-off Asian community there. Anyway, so they came over here and, yeah, had a life and had two daughters and a son, my grandfather. 
And then, of course, World War II happened. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. They were sent out to go into the internment camps, which, again, are concentration camps, basically. And being an Asian American in Seattle at the time was very difficult because white folks don't know the difference between Japanese, Chinese, Thailandese, uh, Vietnamese, and the like. And so to not be a victim of that anti-Asian fervor at the time, they kind of said, you're in America now, we speak English. So fast forward to my grandfather, he basically came of age in the, the age of the hippies, so the 60s. And he met my grandmother, who is a white woman, and which was very taboo in the Chinese community, especially the well-off Chinese community. You do not marry outside of the Chinese immigrants. But he did, because he's a rebel. And that kind of started this interesting thing where my side of the family kind of became the black sheep and slightly ostracized for a very long time. So my grandfather married my grandmother. They had two kids, my mom and my uncle. And, of course, two very Chinese-looking babies. And, of course, the same thing with my grandmother. She's a very well-primmed you know, white woman who married a Chinese man. And so she was also ostracized from her family because mixed-race marriages were just not what you did back then. So they ended up having the only place that would accept them was, of course, in Seattle. And they moved into the city proper, into a neighborhood called Rainier Beach, which, again, if you're from Seattle, you know that's a very rough neighborhood where typically the minorities kind of get pressured into in this poverty-stricken area. I think it is improving now, but even today, it's become a place of uh, where it's just governmental neglect quite often. My mom grew up in a high school where there were a lot of drive-by shootings. Her high school is riddled with bullet holes. My uncle was in a Chinese gang as a teenager. My mom you know, was a bit of a feisty street fighter, <laughs> but you had to be to survive. So they grew up rough, but eventually my mom met my dad, who's a Danish immigrant son and fell in love and then had me. And I came out looking like the widest fucking girl you'd ever did see. Excuse the language. Sorry, I don't know if I can swear. <laughs> so um, it was a very weird mix. My dad's brown hair. I came out like the bleach blonde baby you know, and my mom, Chinese girl. And it was, again, um, you know, living in economically difficult situations, circumstances often lead to additional difficulties. So I was a shotgun wedding baby. And um, the grandparents and parents on all sides were like, you kids are getting married because you're not having a kid out of wedlock. So they got married. And I think once they got married, slowly, I think the family realized that this ostracization needs to stop. It's starting to affect generations. So we were slowly kind of re-welcomed into the family. And then my great-grandparents accepted us back. So I have so many memories of me spending a lot of my childhood visiting my, my great-grandparents, my Gungun and Popo. So that's grandmother and grandfather in Cantonese, I think. And because my great-grandmother did not want us to call her great-grandmother, she refused to accept that she was that old. So we could only call her grandmother. <laughs> and yeah, so I pretty much grew up with my Chinese heritage all around me. 
And eventually my sister was born and then my brother was born. And we had this joke in the family where with each kid, my mom's genes were taking over because each kid looked more and more Chinese till my brother was born. And he just just 100% Chinese baby. I mean, you would never guess he was a quarter Chinese. He looks 100% Chinese. And he was the golden dumpling of the family. The day he was born, my great-grandfather was just all over that baby. <laughs> he was just so happy. Wendy says that for the longest time, she didn't realize that she didn't look, quote-unquote, like her siblings. One thing about being mixed-race Asian-American is that genetics are very bizarre. You never know what you're going to get. It's like playing poker. You don't know what the hand you're going to be dealt is. And I was dealt the Danish hand, and my siblings were dealt a mix of each, and my one of my brothers was dealt all the Chinese cards. So for me, you know, when you're a kid and you grow up with a multiracial family, you don't see differences like we're taught in school. I remember so clearly when I was six years old, I was staring at my face in the mirror and I was staring at my siblings, I was staring at my mom and my dad. And something in the back of my mind said, there's a reason why I don't look like my dad, like I'm not my dad's face and I'm not my mom's face, I'm my face. And I remember feeling my nose in the shape of my nose. And then I remember going up and feeling my dad's nose in the shape of his nose and my mom's nose in the shape of her nose. And my parents were so weirded out. They were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I have a nose and you have a nose. We have noses. But my brain couldn't make a connection. Their noses were different shapes. But I was just like, it's so weird. We have noses, but we look different. But we have a nose. And so I think for me as a kid, it was enough that we all had noses and we all had eyes and we all had the same body parts. Well, facial features at least, that I was like, okay, for me, that was enough. We're the same. We're family. We're the same. We look the same because we have the same. And it wasn't till I was in fifth grade when I was learning about the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. And I remember we were going through the lessons and I remember feeling so immensely proud to be an American, so immensely proud that these were Americans and this is what we can do. And just, I can't even begin to put words, the swelling of pride that as a kid in fifth grade that I was having for this movement, because again, I didn't see African-Americans as being any different than me, no more different than I saw my baby brother any different from me or my mom or my gungun and popo being different from me. And so I was like, these are Americans and those weird folks who, judge them on skin color, I thought it was the stupidest thing. Because I remember there was this Dr. Seuss book about these monsters and one of the, some of them had stars on their bellies and some of them didn't. And the ones with stars in their bellies, I think were like, oh, you're not like us. And I would think it was so stupid because I was like, why would you separate people like that? And so for me, it was the same thing. So we we're going through this whole curriculum about the civil rights movement. And then it came to a point where my teacher, who I absolutely hate, she was the worst, but here's one of the reasons why I hate her. We all, none of us kids were understanding why people discriminated based on looks, your skin color, your general ethnic features. We didn't even understand what ethnicity was really. We were just like, people are people. So she tried explaining it and she was getting exasperated. And eventually she says, well, take Wendy for example. She doesn't look like her family. She doesn't look like her brother or her mom. They look Chinese and she's white. And I was immediately so angry. I was like, how dare you say I don't look like my baby brother? How dare you say I don't look like my mother? And then I remember I was just angry and I was sitting there chewing on it. And then it hit me in a flash. 
I don't look like them. I don't look Chinese. And then suddenly it was like this wave of realization of what Chinese looked like and what white looked like. And I had this, I've never, like as a kid to say that you felt hatred is so strong, but never in my life have I ever felt hatred like that before. The hatred I had towards this woman for making me see something I'd never seen before. And that was the start of this identity journey that I had to take of just reconciling the fact that I don't look. And what does that mean for my right as an Asian American to even call myself Asian American? So it was really, really troubling because my family completely accepted me and they never ever for a second made me feel like I was other or I didn't look the same. It never came up in conversations. I mean, nothing, no one ever commented on my looks. And also just to say that all my friends around me were, were just like me, just various mixes of um, either being a mix of African-American and Japanese or Korean and a mix of European or something like that. Like everybody was a mix and everybody showed it in different varieties. I mean, the way I, the variety I show it is I have very Chinese hair, but my dad's Danish color. I have a very Asian build, but I have my dad's giant ass European hands and feet. I mean, my family always made fun of me that I had skis for feet and monkey hands because they were so big and they didn't fit the rest of me. Whereas my sister has the you know jet black hair, but she has my dad's Danish hair texture. And she has the Asian build, but she also has the European endowments of having a figure where I'm just a box, you know? And so it, it's, it's a random mix and people don't quite realize that. And, you know, part of my identity journey was just trying to understand how I fit in and why it is I always felt like an outsider because after learning that I didn't look like my brother and my mother, I definitely for the longest time hated my skin and I hated my eyes. I hated my body. I hated my hands and feet. I remember I used to stand in front of the mirror and I would pull my eyes back to make them look Asian. And I would just wish that I was born with my mom's eyes and I had eyes like my brother. And I would let them go and they snap back to this droopy Danish eyes that I have. And I would say, well, thanks, dad. And then I would just be like, I was just... I had no pride in, in my Danish heritage. I didn't want to know anything about it. I never asked questions. I didn't hate it, but it just wasn't me and it wasn't what I was raised with. I was raised completely surrounded by my Chinese heritage. So yeah, it was for the longest time I had to reconcile that the way I look is okay. I would hide my body. I would hide my hair behind bangs, which I still do, but not as much as I used to. I would just constantly hide, hide myself. And in the end, I adopted very meek Chinese girl mannerisms, which people would comment on like, it's so weird that you, you move around like a, like a Chinese girl, but you're not Chinese. Like, I'm, you know, again, when I moved out here, I had, to change, I had to really work on my body language to really change it so that I didn't come across as someone who might be appropriating body language. That was the thing I always fought with trying to not look like I was appropriating, appropriating my own ethnicity which is so weird because I don't like it. I'm not allowed. And that kind of goes into what it's like growing up as an Asian American in the U.S. and especially when you have a huge Asian American community around you. Unfortunately, if you don't look Asian, you are not allowed to call yourself Asian American. You are not allowed to participate as an Asian American. And it's it sucks. I remember going to my university. I went to University of Washington, which is a great university and also a massive Asian community. 
And I remember they would have, you know, the days when they would show off all the clubs that you can join. And there were a lot of Asian clubs. And I so desperately wanted to join because I miss participating in these things and connecting because that's a huge part of me. And I remember I would walk to these tables and the looks I would get was like, white girl, fuck off. Like, you're not supposed to be here. And so I would just kind of meekly go on, but I would look at those and just wish so much I could join that. And then knowing full well my sister can and my brother can and no problem whatsoever, but I can't because I don't look it. And even for the longest time as a young adult, I always kept a picture of me and my family in my wallet to prove, almost like an identity card. I had to prove that I was Asian American. And I would pull it out if it came out in conversation. And I would say, this is my mom, this is my brother, this is my sister, this is my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, just to prove it. And it was, it was, it was, it's, it's so silly that you would have to have an, you know, your quote-unquote identity card to prove who you are. And yeah, it took a lot for me to get to the point where I am today where I can accept one, my body. And secondly, I can with comfort say that I am Asian American. But even saying that, I hesitated. Like there's a fear in my gut where it's like I have to check who I say that to. Like I typically won't say it to another Asian. You know, do I have the right? You know, because again, I think part of that pressure of that I don't, I'm not allowed is of course what comes with looking white. I'm obviously very white passing because I'm a white girl. So I, along with that comes with the privilege of walking down the street white, which means I can walk down the street invisible. I can walk down the street unseen, which was always my goal growing up because I hated myself and I hated my body. I didn't want to be seen. I was largely invisible and it was so easy for me to do that. Against this background, Wendy reflects on her siblings' experiences. One thing I always noticed and it happened so often was when he's playing against another team, where sometimes someone would shout, hey, Mexican, hey, Mexican, to my brother. And of course, none of us thought that they were talking to him until you know they would immediately tackle him and be like, I was talking to you, kind of thing. And then what I realized is that being mixed-race Asian-American means that quite often you get mistaken as being Latino or Latina or something like that. And my sister had the same experience. Everyone thought that she was Mexican. It's just the way that, you know, if you have a white parent and a Chinese parent or Asian parent, and when it mixes, in some ways, it can look very Latin, like Latina or something, or Mexican. Don't know if I'm using the right words for, the, for, for that, but anyway. So for, for them, they had this double challenge of walking through the world as Asian, but also walking through the world being perceived as, as Mexican. And in the area where I grew up, there's a lot of prejudice, unfortunately, against the Mexican community. But anyway, so my siblings had to kind of go through, through that nonsense as well. So they dealt with racism in ways that I never had to and no other person in our family had to either. Because they were the first, we were actually the first mixed race generation in our Chinese immigrant family. So we're the first ones to face this. And so their journey is very different than even the journey my mom had because she looks very much more more Chinese. So she, there was never that, she never had to face that, hey, hey, Mexican kind of thing. And, you know, so I know my brother and my sister had a very different identity journey that they've had to go through. And yeah, I mean, we haven't talked to it too much in depth because being very Chinese, we don't talk about emotional things. So um, 
I haven't had that in-depth conversation with them. I've, I mean, I can only just say from what I observed and just reflecting on my own journey, how much more complex theirs has had to be and how simple mine has been comparatively. Because all, all I've had to do is watch as an outsider looking in, wishing I could be part of the party, whereas they're part of the party, but they're also being told that they're actually belonging in this other party. So it's something that, you know, I hope one day I can have a conversation with them about. Every time I've tried, they're just like, yeah, it's fine. It's no big deal, whatever. They brush it off. But that's just the way, what you do. That's a defense that, that we, we have. And so we're, what I've realized is that being a mixed race Asian American is a very different experience than being just Asian American. And again, it all surrounds identity. And a lot of us don't feel seen because a lot of us aren't allowed to be seen. And there was this movie called Aloha that came out. Was it 2012 or something like that? And for my family, we were flipping excited for it because it's a true story about an Asian American woman. She's, I think, a quarter Chinese, like me, and, and like my siblings. And she struggles with her identity as being an Asian American, but with, you know, brilliant, fiery red hair. And this is the you know, true story of a woman who looked like this and had this experience. But the larger Asian community, there is a huge uproar. And the movie was criticized for being whitewashing because it cast Emma Stone as the character, not an Asian American. And in my mind, at first, I was like, yeah, you could definitely find an Asian American who looks like us to do that part. But, you know, all my family said the same thing. My mom, my cousins, my siblings. Emma Stone looks like a freaking mixed race Asian American woman. She has the facial structure and the eyes and everything. She looks like someone who could very well be mixed Asian. And so we were like, hey, she looks enough, it works. But the uproar we quickly realized wasn't the fact that she genetically didn't have the blood of a, an Asian ethnicity. It was that she didn't look Asian. They wanted someone who looked Chinese because they were like, you could have casted any Chinese actor in there or Japanese actor in there, like Japanese American, Chinese American. And it was this huge uproar to the point where the director himself made an apology, apologizing for not casting an Asian American. And that just set me off. I was so angry. Because I was like, we are Asian American too. So what if we don't look 100% Chinese or 100% Japanese? We're still Asian American. So him saying that he regretted not casting an Asian American, meaning someone who looks Asian, just was like a punch in the head. And I was so mad, I just ended up writing an op-ed and I sent it to every newspaper I possibly could. Nobody took it up because let's be honest, this topic is something that isn't ever talked about because it's, I mean, it's like opening a can of worms that haven't been opened yet and we're just not ready, I guess. But, you know, it's my cousins, like some of my, the, their, their kids are born with flaming red hair, just like the woman in the story. And my hair goes flaming red too, if it gets enough sun. And same with my sister, she gets super bright red highlights. And I don't know if it's a, a result of being mixed race Asian and that's just our highlights are red. My cousins even have red hair, like, you know, red brown hair, it's almost a similar color to mine. And it was just, it was maddening to see their story basically pushed to the side and then seeing them being told that their existence doesn't exist. They don't exist. They don't deserve representation. 
And the fact that the director himself apologized, it was like he was apologizing for our very existence, that people like us exist. People like the woman he was making that movie about existed. All he did was cast an actress who looked very similar to the actual human being he was making the story after. And it just highlighted so much of the struggle that we've had to have or to go through in the Asian American community. Is that, again, if you don't look the part, you are not welcome to the club. You are not allowed to participate. You are not one of us. You cannot say you're one of us. You cannot claim to be one of us. It's getting a little better now where if you look somewhat in some way or other, like, oh, yeah, 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 you're welcome, man. But, you know, gals like me still are not welcome to the club. But it just made me mad. If you're born with natural red hair, you're not Asian American. Wendy eventually left Seattle and moved to Europe for work. Crossing the Atlantic gave her the space to reflect on the question of romantic relationships and the constraints she faced back in Seattle. Wendy says this ultimately led her to reflect on the prominence and stickiness of existing prejudices within the Asian American community. One of the pressures that I left behind when I moved out here is before I moved out here, there was a strong pressure for me to marry a good Chinese boy. And part of it, I think, was because my family wanted to get those Chinese genes back into the family line so that there'd be no more white babies. <laughs> and I just remember that every time I would go and see my Gugun and Popo, you know, Popo would say, so why you no date Chinese? And I was like, I'm not dating anybody. Like, I literally wasn't dating anybody. I had no interest. I was paying my own university funds. Like, I mean, you know, no one paid for it but me. And I was working three jobs. You know, any free day I had, I was working to help pay for school so that way I can get the education that I wanted to have. So I'm, I was like, I'm working, which was great because they were so happy when they heard I was working three jobs, you know, you know, make the money, get the degree, and then find a good Chinese boy who'll take care of you. Because it's a very... I think just the, the generation of Chinese immigrants in my family, it's a very matriarchal society. The women handle the household finances. They handle every the child rearing, everything in the family structure. And the men just go out, earn money, and come home and shut up. Like, that's the way it was. And it was only me who was getting that pressure as the oldest daughter. Um, my sister didn't get those questions. She, they weren't like, so when, when are you going to get married? When are you going to find a good Chinese boy? But it was funny, after a while, they just gave up on me finding a Chinese boy. So like, how about Japanese? Which, it, which for, for a Chinese immigrant is very strange because there's that animosity between China and Japan. And so for them to be so desperate to have Asian blood in the family, and they were like, just any Asian will do. <laughs> and, I, and I remember for the longest time, the excuse I would come up with was, well, I just don't want to date someone who looks like my brother. And it wasn't because I didn't want to date someone who looks like my brother. I think part of it, looking back, was that I didn't feel like I had the right to marry into the community that I didn't feel like I was allowed to be a part of. And it's not like I'm not attracted to Asians or, or anything like that. It's just that I feel like I don't have the right. And even though it's stupid hearing myself say it, I'm like, of course I have the right. I mean, heck, like... There's some really smoking hot dudes that I know back home in Seattle who are Asian American. I'm like, damn, son, I'm like a piece of that, you know? <laughs> but it, it's anyway, so when I, at that time, I just, I was, I delayed dating largely because of that pressure. I just didn't date anybody. And I, in fact, I didn't date anyone until, my, until I was 26. And that was when I was well-established here and everyone had stopped asking me the marriage question. 
in the beginning, I did have a preference. Like I wanted a guy who, if he was going to be white, he had to have black hair and he had to have brown eyes. He had to be as close to Asian features as possible. And weirdly, when I moved out here and I felt free, I was like, I flipped it. Blonde hair, blue eyes, let's get the most white ass dude, you know, someone just to really piss off the family back home, you know? And then I just realized like, these were all stupid reasons. Like my reasons for choosing a guy and my reasons for attractions were so unhealthy and toxic in a lot of ways, built from that family experience and what I was ingrained in me, that racism. Because people don't realize the Asian community, we're really racist. Like it's not white folks who are just racist. The Asian community is very racist amongst themselves and against African-Americans. And, you know, it's a... Uh, it's not cool. And I mean, I, I would say like with each generation, it gets better and better and there's less pressure. But yeah, it's definitely there. And even if it's subtle, it, it gets in the brain and it festers and it grows. And so I am, you know, what one thing I always like, like to tell people is really sit down and think about why you think the things you do and why you have the impulses you have. You know, really dissect it. Ask yourself, is this something that you've come to learn? Or is this something that you felt like you've always known? And then question that. Is that something you were taught? Is it some product of your environment, your upbringing? And if it is, maybe question it, see if it makes sense. Try to understand the history. Like, how did that come up to be? Why is it that, for example, in the Chinese community, they would rather maybe first go to a Chinese man than the Japanese man? Well, because there's that historical history of war and conflict that hasn't been reconciled yet. And, you know, I come from a very old generational Chinese immigrant family. So we're going to hold on to old history and that's definitely going to feed into our family history. And it also goes into the fact that my mom was raised in Rainier Beach where it's predominantly African-American and the Asian-Americans and the African-Americans, they stayed separate. They would not intermingle. But um, that racism is there and it does carry over. And I've had to do a lot of work on that. I've had to do... Even just in the last two years, I had to do a lot of therapy work on to understand, you know, also looking more into my identity, but also looking into my relationships. And I've had to learn that it's not the way someone looks or their features that is the concern, it's their personality. And it sounds so simple and obvious when you say it out loud, but none of us actually do that. Even people who were, you know, raised in, you know, maybe a racial family or multiracial family or even had apparent racism you know, racism is insidious it's it's not overt you know true racism is not overt it is deep within the foundations of a family culture within a generational culture and it's very difficult to bring to light because it's so struck into the foundations you don't see it against the background of her experiences Wendy has the following to say about what she thinks it takes to be anti-racist. For me, what it takes to be anti-racist is to do a lot of work on yourself, self-reflect, challenge those social norms that you deal with day in and day out, really understand your family culture. So, you know, through the, the Asian American lens, you know, that whole journey I had to go through with a uh, being pressured to date and marry myself a Chinese boy or my brother's experience where he's had, he gets, you know, moments of racism from one thing or the other. Be aware of what people around you are going through. Be aware of what their stories are. Look to your story, your family story, but also look at the stories around you and see 
what your reaction is to that. And then understand why it is you have a certain reaction to it. Because one of the guiding lights that you'll have in navigating through your own internalized racism, which everybody has, there's no one exempt whatsoever. One way to navigating it is to keep a close eye on your reactions to things. If you read something and it just really gives you the ugh, the cringe, like, ugh, like that didn't feel good. I'm going to quickly swipe past that. Go back to it and look at it and really ask yourself, why did I have that reaction? Why did this bother me so much? You know, why did someone say, you white people, blah, 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 blah. Why did that upset me so much? Or if someone's talking about an experience that they had, you know, ask yourself, what would it be like walking in their shoes? Just a uh, self-reflection. And again, always remember that it's not just about you, that everything that you feel and you've inherited through this has been inherited through your family culture, that they in turn inherited through their family. It's generational, it's progressional. So it's not that you're a bad person for having these thoughts and these feelings and these tendencies. It's just that it's what you inherited, but you have the responsibility to break it and you have the responsibility to be aware of it. And if you are ever going to be an ally, that's the first thing you've got to do self-awareness as much as possible. Wendy wants to end her episode by sharing with us that recently, her mother did the 23andMe DNA test. This led them to family they were told died in China on Wendy's great-grandfather's side reaching out to her mother. It turns out this family lived 30 minutes away from them and were never dead. Wendy's family story continues with a journey of uncovering and recovering lost family connections. You can find articles, books, and videos Wendy recommends people to look at on racism on our website, www.ourcontext.org. You can also find the transcript of this episode on our website in English, French, German, and Italian. If you have a personal story to share, reach out to us on our website, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find us by typing in hashtag our underscore racism. This is Fumi and hashtag our racism. See you next year on Wednesday, January 5th. This episode was produced and edited by me, Fumi. Introductory score by Luca Nioi. Other music by Pete Morse, Crescent Music, and Fuga Vibes. A big thank you to Wendy for her time and energy in reliving for us some of her painful memories and sharing with us valuable reflections on this issue.